Well, good morning. You all get a little bit of a gold star. I don't know if you get a full gold star, but uh, it's impressive. I mean, I posted a thing on Facebook about uh, Spring Forward, maybe on Monday or Tuesday, because I saw someone from someone else. But I'll tell you what, last night I completely forgot about it. If it weren't for my iPhone automatically adjust, I would have been in big trouble this morning. But I'm grateful uh, that uh, the iPhone, as the alarm clock automatically adjust. But anyway, so for the fact that you found your way here on time uh, is impressive. So uh, this morning we want to talk about the first Sunday in Lent, and we want to talk a little bit about the flow of that. Um, I gave you notes there because this morning I'm going to preach and just follow the New Living Translation because I think the New Living Translation is a lot easier and more accessible for us this morning on this particular text. Uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians that I'm going to be looking at. Um, you know, it's hard to find a bad translation these days, by the way. There's a lot of good translations. And translations, uh, basically, they approach uh, translating with a little bit different formula, uh, trying to uh, uh, balance between uh, integrity with the original words and order with making sure that the words if that were used back in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, that those words actually make sense to us today. And so I'm not going to do a, a lecture on Bible translation, but almost all the different translations are useful in certain ways. Uh, and uh, people always ask, you know, uh, which Bible or which translation is the best? There is no best. Uh, Gordon Fee, famous translator, a guy who, a uh, very famous guy, he says, uh, this is good for the Christian booksellers. He says, uh, you should just have two or three different ones that have the different approach and you compare them and you see those ones that are more like the New Living Translation that are dynamic equivalent and then you might have things like the New American Standard that's a little bit more uh, on the uh, word for word side and word order side and, and it's in looking at those different things that you keep yourself on track uh, in a good way if you want to study the Bible. But this morning, the New Living Translation is what I'm going to use, hence your notes in your hand. Now, uh, I want to remind you that Lent and the season of Lent, uh, you know, I rehearse this a lot, but it really is important uh, because the Holy Spirit led the church historically to think through very carefully sort of sequential steps of growth. Uh, and so uh, one, maybe one time I'll, I'll, I'll do a, a sermon or maybe a two or three on the structure, the theological structure of the church year in terms of how in Advent we anticipate second coming, uh, we live holy, uh, the incarnation, epiphany, studying the human nature of Christ, and then we emphasize the uh, divine nature of Christ. Uh, then we move into Lent, and in Lent we recognize, and the Lent is all about the example of Jesus and the example of the apostles and uh, following the way. You know, I remember uh, Russ Parker here saying a very, kind of a throwaway line, but something very important. He said, Jesus is the way before he's the truth and the life. It turns in, you discover in your spirituality, in walking with Jesus, it's in walking with Jesus where you move from simply knowledge to really getting the truth. All right, so it's, it, there's, a, there's a pattern in, in following Jesus uh, that, that truth gets revealed, and then we experience more and more of the spirit in life. Right? And there's a, there's a flow to these things. There's a process uh, to these things. And so we're trying to follow those. So Shrove Tuesday, we start out and remind ourselves that grace always precedes everything, that we're not doing any efforts with the idea that we can earn something. Certainly not some silly fast. If, if, if we didn't have food or water for 40 days, uh, that would be nothing. That would be absolutely nothing. 
Uh, so uh, we're not going to get any merits or something. We simply look to subdue the flesh, as the prayer said this morning, that in the subduing of the flesh that we could be empty. We're asking God in Lent for the grace to be empty so there will be space for God to fill us more and more with himself. All right, and that's the idea. So, so Shrove Tuesday, grace is perceiving us. Ash Wednesday, uh, a service of corporate repentance. So one day a year... We put on the sackcloth and ashes, so to speak, and we have an outward demonstrated public uh, time that as the people of God, we come and say, this world, this city, uh, this church, our families, our own lives, things are not the way Jesus wants them to be. And so we come together as the people of God and we repent. And in the service of the great litany and the penitential office, some of you might have thought it was going to go on forever the other night on Ash Wednesday, we actually go through every category of sin and as the people of God, we confess those things corporately uh, in the Ash Wednesday service. And then an Ash Wednesday service will remind it, while there is a time, as Joel 2 and the Bible commands us, to come together corporately and to be public in our display of fasting, for the rest of our fasting, Jesus tells us not to disfigure our faces when it comes to personal fasting. And so uh, I'd love to tell, Susie, I'm so hungry. I mean, I like, you know, get a little tension, get a little sympathy, although... She's Swedish. You don't get a lot of attention doing that kind of stuff. But, but I try every now and then, right? Uh, for the rest of Lent, we are personal, private. We don't ask everybody else what they're doing. I broke one of the laws. Uh, you know, one of the laws is that you don't challenge other people. I said to a family member the other day, didn't you give that up for Lent? That's prideful and compa- should never have said it. Should never have said, I shouldn't have said it. When I said it, I realized, oh, that's like going to be shame. That's like, a, anyway, it was wrong, so I had to apologize. Um, in any case, grace goes before us, corporate repentance, and now the lesson for the first Sunday of Lent is that we would follow the example of Jesus. And if Jesus, you know, this says the Holy Spirit led him to be tempted of the enemy, it was crucial that Jesus come into himself and to take and to do battle with the devil. That was crucial, a crucial part to initiate his ministry. But it says that the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, and he fasted 40 days, meaning the Spirit didn't just lead him in the wilderness for battle. He led him in the wilderness first in preparation. Now, isn't it interesting, if you're going to go to battle, you wouldn't think that you'd want to be weak fasting like Jesus fasted for 40 days, because humanly speaking, he was weaker in 40 days than he, at the end of the 40 days than at the beginning. But the principle is, there is a grace in fasting to be weak physically, but to learn a dependence upon the Spirit, to open ourselves up, and to allow the Holy Spirit to come in us, and to strengthen us in God's presence, in the emptiness of the, our human condition and our, our, our uh, fleshly, reasonable needs of eating and all that, that in the absence of that and in the place of fasting, the Spirit will come. And so Jesus' preparation, the reason he did well against the enemy was he got closer. Now remember, he, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. But according to his humanity, he operated, yielded to the Holy Spirit, and it was needed for him, even though he had no sin. It was needed for him for his humanity to fast, to create a sort of space, an opportunity for the Spirit to fill him, for the third person of Trinity to fill him according to his humanity, even though he was 100% divine. Now, these are mysteries, uh, but they're real things and they're really important. So the first principle then of Lent is don't presume, 
to save the world until you let Jesus get a hold of you. How's that for the first lesson? Don't presume to help everybody else. Isn't it funny how much we want to help everybody else? Some people, they're emotionally engaged with everybody else's problems and everything else, but it's just keeping them from dealing with their own stuff. And the principle is we want to let Jesus get a hold of us. We don't want to just have a sip of the gospel. We want to allow and to seek the Lord in such a way that we would know him and that we would be transformed by him. So the, the lesson this morning in the epistle of uh, Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 to 10, let me remind you that in 2 Corinthians, Paul begins to tell us two powerful things. And it's all based on Pentecost. And he says, basically, he describes how the Holy Spirit has been working in him and how the power of the gospel has saved him and is transforming him. And then as he moves into chapters 4 and 5, he tells us that the most amazing thing, that as he's let the gospel transform him, now the gospel, as he's preaching it, it is transforming others. He's being fruitful in kingdom ministry. And it's not accidental that Paul first is letting the gospel transform him and then he is being fruitful in kingdom service. All right? And, and there's a crucial connection. First, we get saved. We come to the Christ. We let him get a hold of us. And we keep seeking. We've got to make that the priority. And then uh, we'll be effective in kingdom service. So let's look at uh, chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. Paul is absolutely thrilled. He just talked about the fact that we have this ministry of reconciliation. That he's, he says, I've been reconciled. God saved me. He's got a hold of me. He's making me holy. And now, can you believe it? He lets me share in a ministry of reconciliation that I get to preach the gospel and other people get to encounter the living Christ, Paul saying, just like I get to. So here he is. He's overjoyed when he says, as God's partners, or as the new King James, I believe, or the King James says, co-laborers, co-workers. As God's co-workers, partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. It says, don't take this grace uh, and then let it be in vain, he says. Meaning, what a horrible thing it would be to hear the gospel, to accept Christ, and not to let God have the full rule and reign of your life. Not to seek him with everything you have so that God has the preeminence. One of the prayers that we used to pray years ago and used to focus, I hate to say it, I just, someone reminded me of it, and I've, I've been praying it recently, uh, for several years I prayed every morning. And that's when I get there and I say, Lord, I, re, I, re, I uh, submit my will, my rights, and my control to you. Now lead me by your spirit today, Lord. All right, Paul's saying, what a horrible thing it would be if we'd have the knowledge and be a shallow Christian here and not let the Holy Spirit transform all of us and then be fruitful. So to, be, to take the gospel in vain is to take it in a way in which we only get a little bit, maybe enough to keep us out of hell, but not enough to be holy and not enough to uh, be used by God for his kingdom purposes. So let's not let it be in vain. Let's not be empty or shallow. And there's urgencies uh, to Paul's speaking, and he starts getting into Isaiah 48 and starts saying, hey, now's the days of, uh, of salvation. And he's saying, basically, look, we have this incredible, and Jesus has come, and before he returns, we have this great moment of opportunity. If we would just take it, if we just lay hold of it, there's so much that can be done in us and then through us. For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. When was just the right time? So it conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, right? These are, say, at just the right time. Galatians, Paul says, when time was pregnant, 
perfect time. When God says, at just the right time, quoting Isaiah, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, Paul writes, the right time is now. This is an urgent need for us to respond. Okay? Not simply to have gone forward, not simply to know Jesus in a shot, but to let Jesus have control of everything. Everything inside of us, everything, Lord, our, our, our recreation, our, our thoughts, our, our, our work, our, our marriages, children, everything that we do, letting and opening ourselves and asking God to show us to lead and guide in every aspect of our lives. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Three, we live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us and no one will find fault with our ministry. Now, this is very interesting. Paul can say this because, as you might remember, there are occasions, uh, many occasions, where he fought with religious people and he wouldn't give in. So he's talking about a very interesting thing here, and Jesus did the same thing. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but boy, he stood up to the Pharisees and the religious people. So I want to talk for a moment about what it means not to cause people to stumble. Number one, when it talks about not causing people to stumble, it's talking about non-believers and baby believers, number one. Uh, and, and, and the principle I want to tell you that's sort of based in Paul, it's a mission principle. It's called PQT, prior question of trust. This works in marriages. It works with children. It works all kinds of ways if we stop and remember. The prior question of trust. I learned this at Wheaton College in a mission class, I hate to say how many years ago. More than 30, hard to believe. I, I look younger than that, don't I? Thank you. You're, you're a sharp kid, Trey. Thank you. Yeah. All right, so the prior question of trust is this. We say to ourselves, is what I'm doing going to build trust and break trust with such and such a person? So when I go to India, we minister. I haven't gone, can't go back to India right now, but nonetheless, when I've been previously to India, we had to ask ourselves a question. We're working with Pentecostal Christians. Now, Anglicans will drink a glass of wine and not worry about it. But my Pentecostal friends, they worry about it. So if I'm going to India and I'm going to be a Pentecostal friends, what am I going to do? I'm not going to drink wine. Okay, meaning we recognize there are things. I'm not stopping ever having a glass of wine, by the way, just because when I go certain places in the world, I recognize uh, that I don't want to break trust with them because I want to minister to them. So I don't give her the rights of all of my life. Paul didn't do that. Paul doesn't say that we should do that. The Bible doesn't say that. Right? But we do recognize. When you go to Latin America, it's amazing how many people we have go on mission trips to Latin America. In a lot of Latin American cultures like Guatemala, if a young boy or girl who are unmarried are alone together on a walk, the presumption of the local culture is they're having sex, uh, that they're sexually intimate. That's the assumption of the culture. So we would do well if we want to minister to people is to recognize, using the prior question of trust, that is not going to build trust. It is going to break trust. But it's amazing how many times people take mission groups and places around the world and don't pay any attention and do all kinds of things that are breaking trust. In a lot of parts of the world, to wear shorts. When I go to Africa, you never see, uh, other than Western men at hotels, you don't see local men wearing shorts. Now, I don't mind telling you, I have the very powerful muscular legs. I don't mind telling you that. But in, but in certain cultures, they, they, they find that intimidating. And so I recognize <laughs> the, the prior question of trust teaches me since in their culture, 
not what can I do and get away with them. They're not, most cultures, they're not going to say you're insulting us and, and, and you're embarrassing yourself and us. They won't say, it's kind of like you're from the West, you don't know any better. But it doesn't build trust that we don't look and observe and ask questions and figure out how we can build trust and not break trust. Okay, this works in, in all kinds of ways. And, and Paul said basically that he was so concerned for the lost that he made it his business, okay, to not offend. Now let me show you how this works. Paul was uh, taken up by a mob in Ephesus, and they wanted to kill him. Uh, and when they brought him before the pro-council or whatever, like the governor guy, whoever it was, over Ephesus, because the gospel had been having so much power, the pro-council guy says, wait a minute, Paul's been here two years, and he's never once spoke against Diana, the, the goddess. And they had to let him go. Do you mean that Paul made it his business to preach Jesus, not to be going around talking bad about everything else? Paul knew that the gospel could be listened to and heard, that the yeast and influence of the kingdom of God would be received and would spread. But he also knew if he went in there and insulted everybody, what would happen to his ministry? He wasn't compromising. He just understood. Jesus, if you really believe Jesus is more powerful... We preach Jesus. We focus on Jesus, not going around and badmouth everybody else. Imagine. I mean, we have people today in ministry of Muslims saying that people are compromising if they don't go in on the day one and say, you know, Muhammad's not really a real prophet. You don't go in and try to lead someone to Christ by punching him in the nose about your disagreements. Okay? You preach Jesus. You let the, uh, we have some Catholics here, but I'll tell you a story. I, I was going to a certain country, and I was working with uh, Roman Catholics. And the Lord told me, and I don't really know why, well, I guess not looking back, I do. He said to me, don't let anything get you into an argument about Mary. I, thought, I was raised Baptist, so I mean, I think, okay, but, but I mean, I, anyway, I go down to a certain country, and I get there with this particular group of Roman Catholics, and the first thing they asked me, they asked me all these questions, expecting me as a Protestant uh, to argue with them about Mary. And all I did was, fortunately, I knew Luke chapter 2, is I just quoted the scripture and said, look, all generations are supposed to call her blessed, blah, blah, blah. And I just, I just avoided it by saying and agreeing with what we could both agree in or what the group of people and myself. In two to three years of going down to this country, maybe four or five times a year, I saw the Lord bring into a very clear, identifiable evangelical personal faith. I'm not saying they didn't know God or know Jesus before, but I'm saying that in time, I saw a whole group of people completely open up their hearts to the power of the Holy Spirit, to healing, uh, to the gospel in a very way in which uh, uh, we would think of as in evangelical terms. But if I had gone in there and argued about Mary, what would have happened? Any chance I had to teach, to preach, to talk, to interact, it would have been over. We do not have to lead with the right punch to someone's nose. That's not how we do it. Paul spent two years not being a pain in the neck, not focusing what they disagree with, but promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right? That's a really good principle. It's amazing how many times we think some knucklehead told us we're compromising if we're not a jerk. You don't have to be a jerk. Jesus went with tax collectors and sinners. He didn't go and tell them how terrible they all were. He told them how good the Father was. 
they found themselves compelled and they came to him and flocked after him because the love of the Father was so compelling. He didn't do it by telling them how horrible and awful. They knew how horrible and awful they were. That's not what they needed. What they needed to know was the love of God. The good news, I heard someone say years ago, and I can't remember who said it, but they said, today the problem with Christian is we've taken the good news and we make it bad news. Anywhere in the ancient world, when the gospel was preached, people, they, even if they didn't receive it, they knew it was good news. Today, so often, when people hear the good news, they don't recognize it as such. What does that tell you? Paul says he didn't let anything get in the way. He understood the prior question of trust, uh, and he operated that way in his ministry. So, we live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us, and no one will find fault in our ministry. For in everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. We patiently, now listen, this is interesting. He, how does he demonstrate? He doesn't say, well, look, I got a degree from here. Look, my theology is better than yours. Look, this and that. The way he showed that he was a true minister was that he lived his life under great persecution and difficulty, and he did it in a holy fashion. Now, I want to tell you, there's a part of the church today, I believe most of them know Jesus. Most of them, there's a great anointing in certain parts of charismatic and Pentecostal churches. They're neat people. But they have gotten off on this idea that if you know and walk closely with Jesus, you don't have to go through any bad times. Okay, that, first of all, that's not the life of Jesus. You can't find any disciple or apostle in the New Testament like that. And in church history, revivals... The, the people who God have used historically were people who as wonderful and awesome and as full of God as they were, they had great sufferings and difficulties. All right? Listen, it should reset your understanding. We need to grow up from childish thinking and thinking, if I'm doing good, everything goes easy. No, if you're following Jesus, we've got an enemy. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's not going to be easy. Don't look for trouble. But don't be surprised when things are hard. Okay, all the people that love Jesus, it's going to be hard. This, this, this world is not our own. How does he command himself as true minister? We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. This word for calamity is tight spot. Let me tell you about a tight spot. Susan and I were, we don't do a lot of hiking as you might look at me and tell. All right, but I was up by Grand Marais when you're up by the Canadian border um, north of, you know, uh, of... Uh, the Twin Cities quite a bit north of Duluth, you know, all the way up to the, like, uh, was it uh, Thunder Bay, uh, Ontario. So we're way up just on the border, and there was a park there, and we were walking because back in the 1700s, 1800s, there had been a major trading post there of Native Americans, and it was a very famous place, and so we were walking out. It's not very far, a uh, quarter mile from the highway, you know, you pull into a little state park, whatever, and, and so we're walking in the river. It's beautiful. We kind of, it was drizzling. We're all alone. We're having a nice time, and I slip and I fall between two boulders. Now, it was funny. You just, I mean, I didn't get hurt. I could have broken an arm. And I'm laughing. The problem is I, I went down with my arm underneath me, and I couldn't have moved. If Susie had not been there, there is nothing I could have done. And we were both laughing so hard. And here I am wedged between here, can't get out, and I'm not a light load to help up. And we're, we're laughing even as it's crazy because, I mean, I'm thinking, man, if I was by myself, the wolves could get me or whatever. I mean, there's no, no way I could defend myself in any way, completely could not move. Paul says, 
He manifests the legitimacy of his ministry that because when he walks through the dark days and the good days, he walks faithfully with Jesus. Listen, if you have the idea that you're doing something wrong because it's dark outside and it's really hard, then the devil's going to be a torment. I want you to know that the holy people of old and of present, they're people who are not uh, tribulations, calamities, difficulties. These things are not uncommon. Do you remember when Timothy was sick with a stomach thing? Do you remember what Paul's advice was? Did he say, fast and pray more? Take him to a healing service? All good things. What did he say? Take a little wine for your stomach. That's what he said. I mean, he didn't say, Timothy, you don't have enough faith. Timothy, you don't, you're not really sick, Timothy. He said, take a little wine for your stomach. Listen, it's, it's, a rough, it's a rough world we're living in. You're going through it. God loves you. He's with you. And it's these very things. It's because Jesus in you, these things are coming at you and through them. If you choose to accept your mission, to follow the example of Jesus through them, you will learn patience and faith and endurance, and you will become more and more like Jesus. And that's what Paul said. He says, through all these things, he was transformed, and then his ability to be fruitful in kingdom work was able to increase. That's what we're going through in this life. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. He doesn't even, he doesn't even have one jet, let alone a, a new jet. We have been beaten, put in prison, faced angry mobs. I've seen tumults, as the New King James says. I've seen mob violence where a person was about to be killed. I told you about that in Tanzania just in December. Saw it happen right in front of our eyes. It's ugly. And I, I mean, to imagine to think, oh, what if I were that guy? Okay, Paul was beaten so bad that people believed he was dead. He's going to mention here, sort of letting them know with tongue in cheek that he's still alive. He'd been put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, gone without food. Six, we prove ourselves by our purity. He's saying by his sexual morals, by the fact that he's, he's careful about his moral life, his thought life. We prove ourselves by our purity, by our understanding, our patience. Patience is to be patient with difficult circumstances. It also means buying into the story. A lot of scholars believe what he means here is the patience of God. The Bible describes, and Paul used the words patience in some places, to describe the fact that we can look back in our lives and see God's hand working not just in months or days, but in seasons and sometimes in decades. And sometimes we see over the, oh my God, look what God's been doing throughout my life. Look what he's brought me through. The patience of knowing that Jesus wins so we can be faithful, come what may, in the meantime. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness. In this case, kindness means the love that the Spirit gives. So instead of getting bitter and resentful and all the things that would be normal to us in our humanity. Now listen, how did this happen for Paul? How did it happen for people like Peter? How, how, did, he, how, did, how did it happen for them to grow like this? Do you remember the, the, the disciples were with Jesus for three years? And yet on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, Peter 
choked and denied Jesus three times. What was the difference in what happened to Peter? You would think if you were trained by Jesus for three years that you'd be full enough with the spirit and everything else. But he wasn't. When did the change happen to Peter? On the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, a coward turned into a man set on fire. And so he goes from being afraid of being exposed and tortured and whatever's going to happen on the night of Jesus' crucifixion, and he goes, and just a little time later, he preaches in front of thousands of hostile Jews and sees 3,000 come to Christ in one sermon. What was the difference? A lot of us, the reason we, this looks crazy to us is because we know Jesus, but we have not yielded to the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and God knows you cannot follow him and grow the way you're supposed to without the Holy Spirit taking control. But it means if the Holy Spirit will take control, we must let go of all kinds of control in our lives. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness by the Holy Spirit within us, the life, and by our sincere love. Seven, we faithfully preach the truth. Today, we live in an age in which people absolutely think nothing of distorting the scriptures and all kinds of things that are according to the fad and the will of the people, so to speak. I can't imagine. I mean, I mean look, I'm going to have a lot to answer. I'm no perfect priest or no great guy. I've certainly got sermons wrong when I look back to, oh, I understand better at 53 than I did at 33. I mean, there's all kinds. We need a lot of forgiveness. But can you imagine deliberately telling people that the things that the Bible say are not true and having the audacity to think that you can correct and change what the Bible says, whether it be about sexuality, whether it be about any of these things? Can you imagine? I can't imagine. Sounds obvious. We preach the truth. We faithfully preach the truth. With fear and trembling, we faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. Meaning, he's saying, when we preach the truth, the Holy Spirit comes and it's powerful. It's got weight to it. Because it's not just opinion or empty words. The Spirit is alive in it. Because it's God's. So here, do you see this thing, how he's, the Spirit's working in him? He's saying, the Spirit works as he preaches and teaches. It's God's words and it's God's power. And he says, but when he lives his life, God's power in him. What's his part? His part isn't what he says. It's the way he lives in submission to God. That's the two things. Letting God's words be the words we speak in our mouths and then submitting to God in his will along the destiny and the course that we're on in this world. We faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working us. We use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. Now the New Living puts that to help us to see what it means when he says the right hand and the left. The, the, the first century hearers of this in Corinth would have understood that you had the sword in the right hand and the shield in the left hand, offense and defense. Okay, he's saying it's the righteousness of Jesus that is, uh, we use the weapons of righteousness, both as our attack and our defense. Eight, we serve God whether people honor us or despise us. We have to learn not to look for people's approval. It's wonderful. Listen, we all love it. I love it if people say, oh, I like that, and I agree with you. But at the end of the day, we have to make sure that we are doing what God says. Okay? It's, if people are great, if people approve, great. But if they don't, so be it. 
Okay? The problem is we're fighting about all kinds of things that don't matter, and then we don't stand for the things that really do matter. Got to be careful. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us. In Paul's life, of course, these negatives happened, you know, 80, 90% of the time. Uh, whether they slander us uh, or praise us. What's slander versus gossip? Gossip is repeating things that are true but shouldn't be said and repeat it because they're unkind. Meaning, we want anyone to know all of our bad things. So the gossip is to have someone who's exposed themselves in some way, in some sin or whatever it is, and we're repeating it. We don't care enough about the person but to expose them and to, to bring them into larger ridicule and shame. The opposite of what Jesus wants to do. So gossip is speaking the truth without any love. Okay, harming people with truth. Slander is twisting the truth and then adding it on. All right? So gossip is telling the truth when it shouldn't be said. We should be silent. Slander is when we twist the truth and it's not even the truth or it's exaggeration of the truth, distortion of the truth, and we say it. That's the difference between gossip and slander. They slander us, whether they slander us or praise us. We are honest, but they call us phonies, imposters. We are ignored even though we are well known. You, can you imagine, if you're in the movie, sometimes the cool line is, you know, I'm so-and-so, and the person says, never heard of you. There are people, some arrogant people act like that. She's saying, he said, we're ignored as if we're nobody, but we're well known. Where was Paul well known? He was well known in the courts of heaven. He was well known in the courts of heaven, and the demons knew him. But there's a lot of people who would have done well to know him who didn't know him, didn't care, didn't want to know him so to speak. That's what he's talking about. We're ignored even though we're well known. We live close to death, but we're still alive. We have been beaten, but we've not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. Listen, we're not looking for trouble, but we need to understand the example of Jesus and the example of the New Testament Christians and realize that in this life, praise God for all the wonderful and the good things. We don't need to look for trouble, but at the same time, many difficulties are likely to come, all right? It's just part of living. And what God is expecting of us to hold on and to trust him in and through these things, how does that happen? It happens because we take times like Lent, not the only things, but we take seasons like Lent where we schedule according with Jesus for 40 days of fasting that we would get empty of a whole bunch of other stuff so that we could know him better. You know, I, I guess it's Andrew Murray who says, uh, he said this beautiful thing. He said, uh, he says, when we pray, we talk to God. When we read God's word, God talks to us. We need to spend some time with Jesus in a special way. We need to allow our physical bodies to be empty so that there be space for the Holy Spirit to come and fill us like never before. You know, the scripture says, you know, if we judge ourselves, we won't be judged. It's kind of like saying part of the purposes and the reason that God allows some of the difficulties of life is though he doesn't send them, he uses us, he uses them to drive us deeper into his love and the knowledge of him. You know, if we take the opportunities that we have, like in a season of Lent, to fast and to pray and to seek him, maybe we might avoid some of the other things. 
Because the purpose of God in his life is to absolutely transform us inside out to be like Jesus and then to help us to be fruitful in the kingdom. Hey, it's the time of salvation. The now time is now. God's inviting us. Let's make good use. Let's not presume to have all the answers and all this other stuff when we haven't yet got Jesus as deeply as we need to. Now listen, I'm not saying don't serve and don't do the part you can do. Like, oh, I'm going to stop loving other people or taking care of the poor. No, no. But get our priorities straight. That's what Lent's telling us. Let's not presume that we were the fixers when we're the ones that really need a deeper measure of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for, for uh, Lord, your, your, your care for us and even for this opportunity. Lord, we, Lent is not essential, but the principle is. Lord, we pray for the grace to be empty. And, and, and Lord, for those who participate, let, let, it, let it happen this way. We, Lord, we know Wesley and others didn't like Lent, but they fasted twice a week. So Lord, however it is, we prayed that part of our spirituality would be a time of allowing ourselves to be empty, to create new space for you because you're always making everything new and we really need more. Lord, this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And Lord, you're looking for people that will take hold of you and your promises and by faith pray and fast and seek you until you pour out your spirit in us and then through us. So Lord, help us, uh, protect us. Keep us from all kind of nonsense and pride and, and, and strengthen us, Lord. And Lord, help us to not experience shame or whatever along the way. If we mess up, Lord, just simply repent and turn to you. Uh, Lord, we give you this time. We give you this season and we long. We long for, for that day when all this part of life is over and you say, uh, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We look to the end, uh, to our hope. Bless us, strengthen us in the meantime. Help us to grow. Help us to be fruitful. We ask these things in the wonderful name of Jesus and the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven.